Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Main Street Finance Podcast. I'm, of course, Alex, your host, and today we have a very special interview. Today, we are going to be interviewing Sarah Holden. Now, Sarah is the Senior Director of Retirement and Investor Research at the Investment Company Institute, the lead association representing regulated funds globally. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's no problem at all. I guarantee you I'm getting the better of this arrangement 100%. Well, look forward to chatting. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? Let's go ahead and start with that title. I mean, that's very impressive. Senior Director of Retirement and Investor Research. So what all does that entail? What is it you do for them? Sure. So the Investment Company Institute has a research department. And in that research department, we have typically seven PhD economists, and I'm one of them. And my group analyzes what retirement savers are doing. And we really have a multi-pronged approach to this so that we can fully understand what's going on out there in terms of Americans preparing for retirement. In particular, we look at 401k plan participants and what they're doing with their asset allocation and their account balances and their loans. We also are able to analyze IRA investors, so individual retirement accounts, to see did they open that IRA with a rollover or did they contribute, how they invested it. We put all of this together really to get a sense of as we're going through our careers and we're changing jobs and we're saving and building that nest egg for retirement, how are people doing with that project? Okay. So it's sort of like a behavioral economics kind of thing. Just the study of here's what people are doing with their retirement accounts. Here's what they're contributing. Here's what they're investing in. Some recent changes they've made to their portfolio allocations, more or less something along those lines. Exactly. And then also we, we track uh, how much is earmarked for retirement. So today we posted our quarterly retirement market update. And in total, Americans have about $32 trillion earmarked for retirement. And so these are in either IRAs have about $11 trillion, 401k plans have about $6 trillion in them. We also have defined benefit plans. And so all of that together is earmarked for retirement. So it's hard dollars that we're keeping track of to have a sense of, well, how much is put aside for retirement. And then we also do get a bit into the behavioral side of it when we do household surveys, where we will reach out to U.S. households and ask them their opinions on 401k plans, or why did they open an IRA, or if they took money out of their IRA, what did they spend it on? And all of this so that we can really get a full picture of the entire process of saving for retirement, sort of transitioning into retirement, and then spending in retirement. That sounds like a lot of fun. Look, I'm a finance nerd through and through. Everyone in my audience knows this already. So I got to ask, this is purely a me question. Uh, do y'all publish y'all's research? Does that go anywhere? Like, where could I, like, stalk you? <laughs> sure. So yeah, ICI has a website, uh, ICI.org. All of our research is there. We also have resource centers. So if you were interested in learning more about IRAs, you would go to our IRA Resource Center. And there you would see FAQs, which would explain what an IRA is. There's different types. You know, would you want to open a traditional or a Roth? And then all of our research would be there showing what have other IRA investors actually done with those accounts so that you could get a sense of, well, what might I do when I decide to open an IRA? We have a 401k resource center that similarly has FAQs and important facts on 401k plans, as well as data on what people have actually done. So there's a lot of just great sort of research and data and information. And I should mention ICI also has an education foundation. So that's ICIES.org. 
And on our education side, we have some of the basics of investing. So there's a series of blogs that will talk about risk versus return and inflation. And we'll explain compounding and go through some of the basics, again, of the different types of investments. And we also will cover education saving over there as well. So a lot of information in terms of explaining the building blocks of some of the concepts that come into play as you start trying to save and invest for retirement. That sounds like a lot of good stuff. I think I found out what I'm doing this weekend. Well, <laughs> I find it riveting reading. <laughs> oh, for sure. Like, again, look, finance nerd through and through. In fact, I spend hours every week producing this content. And by some magic, all you got to do is start a podcast. And you can talk to people who are CEOs, senior directors. It's amazing who you get to talk to. <laughs> that sounds, sounds like fun. It, it really is. I really enjoy it. Like having you on the show, I would never talk to you in a thousand years or be able to talk to you and get on that calendar if I didn't have a podcast. So you know what? Honestly, it's for me, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I thought well, we might want to um, work through a little bit. Uh, you said finance nerd and saving for retirement. There's a, sort of a lot of moving pieces to that process. And so people often ask, you know, really, how do I get started? Uh, what's the best way to you know, take that first step on that path to saving for retirement. And really the first best place to start saving for retirement typically is at your workplace. So it's typically the plan that's offered to you at work. And depending on where you work, it could be a 401k plan if you're in the private sector, or it could be called a 403b plan if you work for a school or a hospital or an educational institution. Whatever the numbers and letters on it, that has to do with what section of the Internal Revenue Code it falls under. Whatever section it falls under, if it's a defined contribution plan, you need to be sure that you are taking advantage of it and you are actually participating and contributing. So step one is ask your employer, ask HR, find out is this one of your benefits? And if it is, uh, typically there'll be a website for your plan and you could go on and they'll have a lot of information about investing and compounding and risk and return, but they'll also have the information about the plan. And you want to be sure that you are participating, that you take advantage of that plan. And the reason I say it's the first best place typically to start saving for retirement is because nine out of 10 401k participants are in plans where their employer puts money into their account. And so in many cases, the way you get that employer contribution depends on how much you put in. So it's often in the form of what's called a match. And the typical formula could be something like if I put in 6% of my pay, they'll match 50 cents on the dollar. So if I put in that full 6%, my employer will put a whole nother 3% of my pay into that account for me. And this is just an amazing boost to the account, an amazing rate of return on that contribution right off the bat before I even think about what I've invested it in. So you want to be sure that you don't leave that money on the table, because if you don't do that, you will have literally left money on the table. So look, take a look at your employer, make sure you're participating, make sure you're contributing there. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Free money is free money, especially if you're in a position where in your scenario you just gave us, you're only going without 6% of your income. You're putting that aside. And as a reward for that, your employer is putting in an additional three. It's like, hey, good job. You're looking out for your future. Here's your contribution. I'll tell you what, here's a little bit on top, except for that little bit on top is a 50% match, or in some cases, 100% match. It just depends on your company. 
right? It could be another common formula will be 100% up to 3% or 100% up to 4%. And you want to be sure that you go at least to get that full match. You might need to save more. And so typically there will be a calculator on the plan website that'll show you if you were to do a career contributing as you were then with various investment assumptions, what you might end up with at retirement. And it'll show you it as an account balance, but it will also probably show you what it will look like as income or a withdrawal in retirement. So you can have a sense of how much could I spend from this account as I'm in retirement. And that may help you figure out you may need to do more than that 6%, or maybe that 6% with the 3% on top is fine, that those calculators will help you do that. So after you've, we've taken care of I'm participating and I'm contributing, uh, the next step is figuring out where am I going to invest? The typical 401k plan has more than 20 investment options in it. The plan sponsor has selected those options so that they cover a range of risk and return. And I know I've said this a couple of times now. Basically, there's a trade-off. I think your, your listeners will be quite familiar. If you put your money in a bank account now, you really aren't getting much in the way of interest or return because that's a very low-risk thing to do. And if you would like higher return, you typically do need to go towards something that's a bit riskier, so something like stocks. And the idea would be figure out for yourself what it is that you're comfortable with. What is the level of risk that you're okay with taking? And most participants will go with a diversified portfolio. So they'll have some invested in stocks, but some invested in bonds. So as to have, you know, not all their eggs in one basket and to have a range of riskiness in that portfolio. As I said, we've got, you know, more than 20 options in the plan. You ask yourself, how much risk am I willing to take? Also ask yourself, am I a do-it-yourself investor and this thrills me? Or if when I said more than 20 options, you started thinking, that sounds like a lot of decisions to make. There's typically in the plan what's called a target date fund. And the target date fund allows you to hand over all that asset allocation and all that investing decision making to an investment professional, the fund managers. And that fund will be diversified for you and it will rebalance for you over time as it approaches and passes the target date. And the target date is the date that you expect to retire. So when you're young, it will have a lot of equity in it. And as you're aging and moving towards retirement and it's moving towards that year, whether it's 2040, 2045, whatever year, you pick the year based on when you think you'll retire, it will be rebalancing to become focused on income because as you enter retirement, that's what you'll be shifting your focus towards. So you just need to ask yourself, how much risk am I willing to take? Do I want to do all this asset allocation myself or would I rather hand it over? an investment professional like a target date fund would do that for me and then invest accordingly and that's really the first best place to go so start with that employer plan as step one so let me ask you this i was actually i had taken a note here to ask you about target date funds and you brought it up beat me to it there but let me ask you this because there's only 20 options and it is something that, you know, 20 options, your 401k plan is the first place you put your money to. Do you recommend or what would your thoughts be towards either sort of a do it yourself approach? Maybe pick your three, four, five mutual funds to go through versus just throwing everything in the target date fund or what kind of educational resources would you recommend to someone who wanted to take the more active approach with their 401k funds? 
the planned website really is the best place to look, I think, in terms of getting information on those specific options that are in your plan. Your plan sponsor, the employer, has chosen those options very carefully. They have a fiduciary duty to act in your best interest in selecting those options for the plan. They've also researched the options to be sure that they cover different risk and different return because they recognize they've got some younger participants, some older participants, and people have different appetites for risk. And then they do typically have the target date fund recognizing that not everybody is a do-it-yourself investor. But it's really a matter of taking a look at that material and asking yourself, am I going to take the time to rebalance and to choose amongst these different funds, or would I rather hand that over and just pick the fund that's going to, again, be diversified according to my age and then rebalance for me over time? So a sort of more set it and forget it kind of approach with the target date funds. With regard to the asset allocation, because it, it changes for you and it's diversified and it does it for the rest of the time you're holding that fund through that target date and beyond. All righty. Sounds like a good option if you don't want to just don't want to touch it again, not have to worry, do I have too much in stocks? Do I have too much in bonds? Just target date fund, let the fund manager just take care of it. It also gives you, I think, some peace of mind as a participant because, uh, as you know, at the beginning of this year when COVID hit the United States, uh, the S&P 500 fell by about a third in less than five weeks. So that was a, a big drop in a very short time. But if you have handed over the management of the diversification of the assets to a professional, so the fund manager, you can sit on the sidelines completely relaxed as they will weather you through that storm. Whereas other participants may be watching and wondering, should I try to rebalance now? Should I not rebalance now? And we find most don't. Most do stay the course, which actually serves them quite well. A part of the great design of the 401k system is the discipline of it in that you are saving paycheck by paycheck, little by little, and you're buying into the market paycheck by paycheck, little by little. And that means you don't have to worry so much about timing the market because you're going to get in and stay in the market and you're only doing a little bit at a time. And if you think about it, when the market was down, what was true of stock prices? They were sort of on sale, these corporations. You were buying low. And then as the market recovers, your account goes up as the values of those stocks that you bought so cheap increase in value. So it really is a, a question of asking yourself, do I want to be in there watching that and paying attention and rebalancing and doing all of that? Or would I rather have uh, an investment professional take care of that for me. It's really a question of just knowing yourself. Know thyself. Something I said in my first episode. And then something else I wanted to bring up, something we had mentioned earlier, we had used that 6% number for the match just as a sort of test figure that maybe 6% is enough with that 3% match, maybe it's not. And I'm curious as to your point of view or yours or for the Investment Company Institute, that what would y'all recommend as the percentage approximately that you should be putting away for retirement. I know the general consensus is between 15 and 20, but that's mostly with investment advisors. I'm curious what the research analysts think about this. There are many pieces to the puzzle in terms of preparing for retirement. And the first really big, broad foundational piece of the puzzle is social security. And that people will be contributing to from their very first job over their entire career. By design, it provides a very high replacement of income for lower income workers versus higher income workers. And then the rest of our system, the IRAs, the 401ks, the defined benefit plans, 
they were all designed to complement Social Security. So that we have those two pieces put together, we end up replacing our income in retirement and maintaining our standard of living into retirement. So there actually, I'm afraid there isn't just one number for everybody because Social Security only goes so far for the higher income versus the lower income. And then you have to supplement or complement that with your savings for retirement. I think the calculators that are on the various plan sponsors or financial services firms' websites help people get a sense of how much they do need to save for retirement because it does allow you to look at it. Well, if I were to continue at this rate over my career, what might I end up with at retirement? I would also note that it may change at different stages of your career. If you're young and you're just starting out, it might be hard for you to get to that match. I mean, you want to get to that match. So you get that for sure. But you may be dealing with your paying down student loans. And those student loans help you get the education that helps you get the job, that helps you get the 401k, but you still have the burden of paying down those loans. Or you may be saving for a house, in which case you know, you're going to have shelter while you're working and it will provide you shelter or a roof over your head in retirement as well. So there are other savings goals. So there's not only not one number for everybody, there may not be one number for any given person, depending on where they are in their life cycle. Well, all righty. Gotta love the it depends answers, which I don't blame you for. It is always it depends. My law professor in college, he would start out every class with, remember, the correct answer to every question in this class is it depends. I thought in law it was facts and circumstances. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> Whatever works. And then I do want to get one piece of clarification here. So something we've mentioned a couple of times here is defined benefit plans. And is that something like a pension or is that something different? Defined benefit plans are a type of pension plan and defined contribution plans actually are technically a pension plan as well. It has to do with the design of the plan. With a defined benefit plan, your benefit is the thing that is spelled out or promised to you. And it's based typically on your years of service at the employer and your salary during you know, maybe the top three years, something like that. So it's a formula. And if you stay at an employer really for your whole career and you retire from that employer, the employer will give you a benefit payment, uh, an annuity for the rest of your life. And if you have a spouse, typically for the rest of their life as well, based on this formula. So what's defined is the benefit. With the defined contribution plan, the thing that is spelled out or defined are the contributions going in. So we talked about I, the participant, will contribute. The employer typically will contribute as well. And what I get at the end when I retire will depend on the account balance. So it will depend on what I invested in as well as what I contributed and what the employer contributed and how that has grown over time. And interestingly, the design of the defined contribution plan is better suited to the American workforce. We tumble our way through our careers. We change jobs as we you know, go through our careers. And with a defined benefit plan, you're rewarded for being at the same employer for a very long time. And you do best if you end at that employer, because if you are at, have a defined benefit plan at the beginning of your career, the benefit is based on that beginning salary when you weren't making as much, and it's kind of locked. The formula is, is set, and then you leave, and eventually one day you'll get the benefit out, but it's based on those early career dollars. Whereas with the defined contribution plan, those early career dollars go into an account that is yours, and that can grow from that day 
for the rest of your career. So they compound over time. They're very powerful dollars, actually, those early dollars uh, in a defined contribution plan. So that's the difference between the two of them. It has to do with the structure of how we think about the benefit. In the case of the DC plan, the benefit is the account. In the case of the defined benefit plan, the benefit is calculated based on a formula based on your salary and your years of work. Well, all righty then. And I think with that, we've covered, so we have 401ks, now we have our defined contribution, defined benefit plans. So I think logically the next step here is IRAs. So we have our 401ks, defined benefit, defined contribution, all of which are through the employer. And then we have IRAs, which the I of IRA is, of course, individual. So the thing that makes that unique is that it is individual. So how does an IRA fit in, maybe if you already have a 401k or a defined benefit, defined contribution plan, or just how does that fit into the scenario here? Traditional IRAs are the first type of IRA, and they were created in 1974 with two goals in mind. So when they were first created, it was for workers who did not have a plan at work so that they could do saving for retirement just like the people who had a plan at work. So they could get before-tax contributions, have the account grow and compound without owing any taxes on it. And then when they got to retirement and took the money out, they would it would be counted as income. Those withdrawals would go into income and they would pay taxes at that point. It was also created to accept rollovers. So I talked about how we tumble through our careers. We often will, as we're tumbling through our careers, move the account balance to an IRA. And this is so to, you know, to keep track of it and consolidate it and not lose it at whatever prior job you, you left it behind at. And a lot of people will open up traditional IRAs for the rollover uh, function. Over time, they changed the rules on the IRAs and they expanded it so that even if you have a plan at work, you can contribute to a traditional IRA. Now, there are income limits, so you may not be able to get a deduction if you have a plan at work, but you could still always make an after-tax contribution to a traditional IRA. And interestingly, over time, they added a spousal IRA so that if I'm working and I have a stay-at-home spouse who is taking care of an elderly parent or is a student or is taking care of children, whatever the reason the spouse is not at a job that has earnings, the working spouse can use their earnings to cover the contributions to an IRA for the non-working spouse, for the spouse who doesn't have earnings, which is a really, I think, fun aspect of our tax code in that it thinks of the household. So I've got someone who doesn't have earnings right now, someone who does, and the person who does can help build that nest egg for the one who doesn't at that point in time. We also added over time the Roth IRA, and the Roth IRA offers different timing of the taxes. With the Roth IRA, you do an after-tax contribution. So you pay taxes on the contribution now. Inside the IRA, it grows just like it would in a traditional IRA. So it compounds and none of the returns are taxed. And when you get to retirement and you take the money out of the Roth, it's not taxed because you already paid the taxes up front, basically. And so a question often comes up, well, how on earth do I decide? So we talked about, you know, the 401k, I have to decide to participate. I have to decide how much to contribute. I then have to invest. With the IRA, I need to first decide where am I going to open that IRA? 75% uh, of IRA-owning households go through an investment professional, so they get some help. They go to a broker or a financial advisor, an insurance agent, a bank rep. They go to a person, someone who will help them open up the IRA. We have three in 10 of them are do-it-yourself, and they just go straight online to either a mutual fund company or a discount broker to open up that IRA. 
So you first need to decide where am I going to, it is individual, where am I going to open up that IRA? And then once I've decided where I'm going to open it, I now have to decide, well, which type of IRA do I want to have? Uh, do I want the traditional or do I want the Roth? And the data show us that younger investors are going for the Roth. And if you think about it, when you're younger, where are you in your career? You're early on, your earnings aren't that high. So what's true about your tax rate? It's pretty low. So maybe I should just lock in, pay the taxes now, and then not worry about paying taxes on that retirement nest egg later. So we do see a lot of younger folks uh, investing or choosing the Roth IRA. And we also see, though, some people doing it for diversification of taxes in terms of, you know, pay some now and pay some later with the traditional. And also to have an account in retirement where when the roof leaks or when the car breaks down or whatever happens, happens, and I need a lump of money, you can take a lump of money from that Roth IRA and it won't impact your tax rate at all because it won't go into your income. So lots of things to think about in terms of traditional versus Roth. And whatever financial services firm you go to will typically have a side-by-side -side comparison of the two so that either someone will walk through that with you or you can walk through it yourself to decide between now and later, do I want you know, the upfront deduction or, rather, or would I rather go for the tax-free withdrawals in retirement and make that decision sort of looking at tax rates now, tax rates later, where are you in your career, where are you in your earnings, and try to figure out which type of IRA to open. Once you've opened it, then you decide on the investments. And that's just where the fun starts. <laughs> yeah, because in the IRA space, uh, basically in the 401k plan, you are limited to really the great lineup that your employer has put forth for you, but it is a limited lineup. Once you're out in the IRA, you really have the whole retail market at your feet. So you could invest in virtually any mutual fund. You could invest in exchange-traded funds. You could buy individual stocks, individual bonds. Uh, so really a full range of investment choices. And again, you know, many people will ask to get some financial advice. Uh, some people will uh, use robo, uh, robo-advisor, so an online service of some sort. And target date funds are also available over in the IRA space. So people can choose to go to that sort of set it and forget it investment option as well. All righty. And I don't expect you to have all these statistics memorized, but just something I'm thinking about that I'm curious of while I have here, you know, someone with a doctorate in economics, and I can just ask questions. What are y'all seeing as far as people who have 401ks that also have an IRA? And then do you have people contribute to both? Or in general, are you seeing people who have a 401k only use their IRA for rollovers? That's a question that comes up quite a bit, actually, because not too many people contribute to the IRA or the, or the traditional IRA. And it's because so many people are using it as a parking place for that rollover from that prior job. And they're really doing their, their saving for retirement in their 401k. We did ask in a survey once about that because we were curious you know, why more people don't contribute to traditional IRAs because it, it really is a great savings vehicle that's available not only to the workers but also to the workers' non-working spouses on top of that. And what we found was that basically a lot of people have parked money there. So there's a lot of rollover dollars there. In the case of traditional IRA, uh, many people were actually older. So if you, it, 
uh, used to be if you were older than 70 and a half, you weren't allowed to contribute. That law has recently changed. So actually those older workers could contribute now, but it used to be once you hit 70 and a half, you couldn't contribute. So if you had a traditional IRA and you were older, you literally weren't allowed to contribute. And then many people said, I'm already saving all that I can in my 401k to take advantage of that. And the 401k limits are higher than the IRA limits. So for many people, they can meet their retirement savings needs using that plan and making sure to take advantage of that employer money that they're going to get over there that they won't have over in the IRA. All righty. Definitely some interesting information. And then another thing I do believe, I agree with you, that the spousal IRA is probably one of the best things that's in the tax code right now, one of the most helpful things out there, because you do have a lot of households that might have one breadwinner, but then you're restricted by only having half the IRA ability to contribute. But now with the spousal IRA, you can do both. So I'm wondering, do y'all have any statistics or rather, do you know any off the top of your head of just how well used the spousal IRA is? I'm afraid it's not a separate category. So the IRS does not track the spousal IRA separately. So I don't really know how much it's used. I hope it's used because you think of all the various circumstances where it could be a student who's married to someone who's got earnings, but the student doesn't. And you could you know, build a nest egg for the whole household doing that. Or someone who stepped out of the labor force because of an older parent or because of children. Or it could be one person's an entrepreneur and they just don't have earnings. And they may not even have profits. They may be hoping to, but, you know, so it could be an entrepreneur who doesn't have the earnings to put in. So I really, it is a great part of our tax code that policymakers thought about the household as a unit. Um, the household's in this together. They're working together to save for retirement and they're making decisions where to save based on who's got the best deal. So uh, one spouse may have a better 401k than another. They'll go to that one. One spouse may not have earnings, but the other one does. So we can set up a spousal IRA. So I think we've got a lot of flexibility and in the system in terms of different ways and different spots to take advantage of in terms of where to put those retirement dollars, but also a conception of the household as a unit working together to build that nest egg. Well, all righty then. And I'm really glad that you brought up entrepreneurs because that brings up the next point I wanted to bring up. Do y'all track solo 401ks? And would you mind going into that for about a minute? And how is the utilization look there? Because I'm a credit analyst by trade. So I look at entrepreneurs and their financial statements and their business financials all day, every day. And from what I see is that not a lot of business owners have those 401ks or rather those solo accounts or their own retirement accounts. So I'm curious what you guys are seeing. The Department of Labor has a booklet that spells out all of the options available for self-employed or entrepreneurs or small businesses to save for retirement. And actually as a self-employed or entrepreneur or small business, really you can choose from any and all types of plans. So you mentioned you could open up a 401k. Uh, the solo 401k is just a 401k. Uh, so solo is sort of more of a marketing term for it. It's not a, a separate uh, entity. It's actually just a 401k, but you could do a defined benefit plan for yourself. You could do an IRA. You could do a SEP IRA. So there's a whole list of different plans and they have a page in this booklet that spells out all the different options and sort of what are the contribution limits? What are the benefits of the different types of plans? so that small employers or self-employed know all the options that are available to them. It is true that large employers are more likely to have 401k plans or to have pension plans than smaller employers, but many small employers may be taking advantage of IRAs as well. And it's something that we would like to make it easier for small employers 
to sort of navigate figuring out, you know, what type of plan can I open and opening it so that there, those workers can be covered. But if you work for a small employer and you don't have a plan at work, you do have the option of obviously opening up an IRA for yourself. Well, all right, then certainly makes sense to me. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to find that booklet and I'm going to have that link in the description below for anyone that is curious and wants to go take a look at that. I've never heard of that, but that's a, definitely a great resource. I'm going to have to go take a look at it and it will be in the description below. Whenever people often ask, where do you want to look to research all of these things? And I always say really a best place to look is go to the regulator that's in charge of whatever it is, because they're going to be unbiased. And they're going to spell out what are the various options, what are the rules around those options. And in many cases, they will try to do it in a user-friendly way. So it could be a booklet that's easier to understand than trying to read through the tax code, which might not be as easy to understand. So in terms of retirement plans, looking on the Department of Labor's website is a good idea because they're the ones who regulate the private sector plans. In terms of investing, uh, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, has a lot of investor education explaining what mutual funds are and about risk and return and all of those good things. And I talked earlier about if when you were opening an IRA, if you were going to go to a broker, FINRA, the Financial Regulatory Authority, has something called Broker Check on their website. And you can actually research the broker before you do business with them. So a lot of you know neutral resources through the regulator. Uh, that can help you navigate setting up your own retirement plan or researching retirement plans. Absolutely. I've actually recently discovered, I know there's always been resources out there, but I've never really looked at them myself until recently. And then another two, again, I'm going to have all these links in the description below in case you're curious and want to go take a look. A couple others I also love are investor.gov, which is, a, I believe, an SEC-sponsored mm -hmm. website. So that has a lot of good information. It breaks it down a lot simpler than the tax code, which... I've read through publishing from the tax code and it's makes you shiver at night, wake up and have nightmares. But so there's that one. And then another big one is the CFPB website. It's the Consumer Finance Protection Board. They have some fantastic resources, especially when it comes to fraud or potentially fraud occurring to you. So that is a fantastic resource as well. And I will also include them. Yeah, those are both really great resources because any place where they it's you know the government is looking out for you you can get unbiased information about retirement or fraud or investing or anything like that which is helpful so that's definitely some good resources highly recommend you guys check that out and now of course since i'm sitting here talking to somebody from the investment company institute let's go ahead and talk about coronavirus because although there is a lot of standards of what should you invest in where should you invest how should you invest what all has changed with investing and saving or even personal finance with regards to, you know, a global pandemic happening? I mentioned earlier when uh, COVID-19 hit the United States, the U.S. stock market tumbled quite a bit. We actually do a survey of record keepers of 401k plans or defined contribution plans. So these are the businesses that keep track of all the contributions and the withdrawals and people's accounts. We've got information on more than 30 million defined contribution plan accounts. And we do this survey every quarter and sort of accumulate the results over the year. And what we saw over the first half of this year was really that 401k savers stayed the course. So even though we are in very difficult times, people do try to stick to that plan of savings for retirement, to stick to that plan of 
keeping that money earmarked for retirement, even though we are in a really tough time now. We tracked through that record keeper survey what people did in terms of contributions. And over the first half of this year, only 2% of the 401k savers had stopped contributing. So it may be uh, their salary or their time got reduced or something happened to a spouse's salary that they said, I, I just can't keep going right now. But it was only 2% of them that did that. We looked at whether people took withdrawals and we saw that about 3% took withdrawals and that includes about 1% who took what's called a hardship withdrawal. Recognizing what a tough patch we're in, policymakers added a new type of withdrawal for people specifically impacted by the coronavirus. So there are coronavirus-related distributions or CRDs. And they have special rules. They're actually quite different from the other withdrawals. Uh, you don't have to pay the 10% penalty and you can pay the taxes on the withdrawal over three years. And importantly, policymakers made it that you could put the money back in. Uh, which normally with withdrawals, once the money's out, it's out. Uh, so these withdrawals have the special ability that over the next three years, you can undo all the tax implications, put the money back into your account and try to make yourself whole. So a very different type of withdrawal. And we saw 3%, about 3% of uh, defined contribution plan participants over the first half of this year took advantage of those withdrawals, which when you think about sort of really the remarkably hard time we've been having, that's really Quite a low number that only 3% uh, decided to do those CRDs. The other thing we keep track of is loans. And we have see a pattern there that people will turn to the 401k to borrow against their account, but with a lag. So, uh, you know, when you reach a tough patch, the first thing you're going to look to is emergency savings. Uh, so you want to be sure that you have emergency savings so you can turn to that emergency saving when you get to this emergency. Other people may run up credit card debt, but maybe you always pay your balance off, but right now you're going to have to carry that balance over because you don't, you can't cover uh, paying that down. So some people may turn to debt, but then some with a lag. So after we've sort of pulled all these other levers, you may finally decide we've got to borrow against the 401k. But that said, uh, fewer than one in five have a loan outstanding at any point in time. And interestingly, in June of this year, uh, the percentage of participants with loans outstanding actually fell. And I think it's because people recognize the CRDs as being a bit loan-like uh, in that you can put the money back. And so the loan activity actually went down uh, during uh, the first half of this year. The final thing that we track in this survey has to do with, well, the stock market went down and then it worked its way mostly back up. Uh, what did people do with regard to tending that garden of the asset allocation. And we saw that um, really a minority either changed their account balance allocation or their contribution allocation or their purchases. So again, for the most part, stayed the course with buying the stocks when they were on sale and just keeping going with that discipline of saving and buying things paycheck by paycheck. But we do have to keep in mind more than half of 401k participants are in target date funds. And so they've handed over uh, that reallocation to the fund and that happens inside the fund. That doesn't get counted in my statistics as having changed anything because you're still in the same fund. So there's still some rebalancing going on, but it's going on inside the fund and it's not participants uh, reacting to the emotion of watching the stock market go down and up and down and up as it does. So I 
think the coronavirus uh, exercise over the first part of this year anyway has uh, really shown the resilience of retirement savers in terms of really trying to stick to it, trying to keep contributing if they're still at work, and also trying to not take that money out, even as we've had some special uh, rules put in place so that they can take the money out really in sort of a safer way because they can put it back in again. Well, all right. I got to admit, I was expecting a lot different answers. I was expecting, you know, more loans, maybe more withdrawals, especially with the coronavirus specific one, which that's a pretty good deal. You take your money out, no penalty and pay it back over three years or pay the taxes over three years. I mean, I was expecting you, I was fully expecting you to come out and say, oh yeah, we've had double digit percentages of people pulling money out, but 2% reduction of people contributing and then 3% of coronavirus deferrals, that's incredibly low. I would have put that estimate a lot higher. Yeah, it really, uh, people always ask me as we, we publish these data, you know, year after year, quarter after quarter, and people are always asking, so what surprised you? And the thing that actually surprises me about retirement savers is really their resilience and their commitment. And I think it has to do with, we talked a little bit in the beginning about behavioral economics, earmarking this in my mind as a special bucket. It's for retirement, really helps people keep it saved for retirement. And it is getting special tax treatment. So it's important to keep it uh, saved for retirement. I think that's why people really try to manage these tough hatches along the way uh, by using an emergency fund or by running up the credit card debt a little bit, by cutting expenses as much as they can before they turn to that safety valve that is in there in terms of a loan or a withdrawal so that you know they know that they could do that but they really try not to. And it's a part of the design of the system that's interesting in that knowing that I could take a loan or knowing that I could take a withdrawal, we know that it allows me to save more because I know that if I hit a problem down the road, I could get to that money if I really had to. That said, most people really try not to. Absolutely. That would definitely be my thought on it. But something I just thought of is, with this low amount of percentage of people stopping their contributions or not putting stuff out, so you have systematically a lot of these 401k investors still putting money in, do you think that maybe has something to do or does it say anything about the emotional maturity of most investors? Because if you think back to 2002 or 2001 when you have the tech bubble, you had people you know, just quitting their job to become a day trader because it was that easy. And then once everything started dropping, everything just shot straight down because you have all these day traders now freaking out, selling, selling, selling. But do you think maybe there's some additional emotional intelligence here with investors in that we had this big crash and yet people kept on trucking, people kept investing, kept putting money in? I just wonder if you have a comment on that. We actually do another survey in sort of to complement that record keeper survey. So with the record keeper survey, that's telling us exactly what millions of people did, but we don't get to ask them why they did what they did. We don't know who the, the people are. So we do a household survey each fall where we ask defined contribution plan participants their feelings about our opinions on defined contribution plans. And 90% of them say that they appreciate that the employer has the plan because it makes them think about the long term, not just their current needs. So there's a lot of education going on at the employer highlighting to people that 
this is a long-term goal. You need to think about your future older self and you know put some money away for retirement. And people recognize and appreciate that message being highlighted to them. That's what our survey survey shows. The other thing we found from that survey, we asked about the market volatility, and about eight in ten defined contribution plan participants say knowing they're doing it paycheck by paycheck actually makes them less worried about short-term fluctuations. So these folks are recognizing this is a long-term proposition. They are in this for the long haul and that there will be short-term fluctuations along the way, but they know that they're doing it little by little, so they are not so worried about those short-term fluctuations. So I think the education that goes on in the 401k plan that the employer does really helps people keep their eye on the ball and keep on trucking, as you say. I definitely agree because I know in my 401k plan, you know, we get these emails like almost every other week that would just, or really every week, just, hey, just so you know, you might want to stay the course. Although things look crazy now, remember that retirement is, and I'm pretty sure they know what your age is. Because like, remember, your retirement is 40 years away. So this isn't going to matter in the grand scheme of things. Don't panic. And I think that really shows that at least something here is effective because, I mean, the stats speak for themselves. Not many people were withdrawing as much as I would have thought, or I would imagine as much as many people would have thought. And then you just, everything kept trucking. We dropped 30% and then what, we're back up to new highs like six months later, seven months later? Yeah. So, and that's the way it goes. You know, we go along and then it adjusts and goes up and goes down. And you, you mentioned you think your 401k plan knows your na- your age. Uh, they do. They need to because several rules are triggered off of your age. So, for example, if you were still had your account with the 401k, even though you'd left the employer and you reached the age of required minimum distributions, they need to know that to let you know that you need to do that. They also, interestingly, will typically use that information to help you along the way. When you turn 50, you'll get an email that says, guess what, Alex, you're 50. You can do catch-up contributions now, so you can put in extra money. So it's part of the, the system. A lot of our rules are triggered off of the age of the uh, participant in the plan, and so it's helpful to have that information to help people either take advantage of you know catch-up contributions or if you're at the point where you need to start taking the money out to avoid penalty knowing that so that you can make sure that they do it well all righty i think we can just leave it at uh the system's working at least thus far <laughs> i think there's many many pieces to it uh, lots of options in terms of you know at work and different types of iras and um, the key really is to you know do some research go to you know a government site uh, or SEC or DOL or ever to get some unbiased information to be sure that you can take advantage of these really great savings opportunities to do your part. Policymakers have put these options out there for you to complement Social Security. So be sure to take advantage of them. Absolutely. And I think with that, we're going to go ahead and work our way towards the end of the show here. And do you have any last second thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? I, I think really the key point is to not worry about doing this all at once. You have a whole career over which to save for retirement and to think of it as as small steps. You're going to be investing little by little. You can set that up with an IRA that you put in a contribution every couple of weeks so that you don't have to make a big decision all at once and really do it for your future self. Uh, Take the minute to research the plan at work. Make sure you're 
fully taking advantage. Do not leave money on the table. Research the IRA if you have a non-working spouse. Uh, I say it's a great Valentine's Day present. Of course, you could pick any other holiday you like as well uh, to open up an IRA for that spouse to take advantage of those earnings to help them have a nest egg for retirement. But really just take the step, take a, a you know little step and do this you know, bite off a little bit at a time in order to build that nest egg. Absolutely. Could not have said it better myself. Perfect. And we've had a lot of fun today. I know I've certainly had a lot of fun today. Uh, all of these links are going to be in the description below. We're going to have some website links. There's going to be all kinds of stuff there in the description. And last question I'd like to ask you, is there any other links or something that you'd like me to leave below for where my audience can connect with either you or the Investment Company Institute or just any other links you'd like to leave us with to where we can follow you and what your company does? Yeah, sure. So ICI, uh, we're on uh, LinkedIn, we're on Twitter, we have ICI.org. So I think you can find us in, in all the usual places. And again, our website has all of our research right up there for everybody to take a look at so you can have a sense of, well, what have other IRA investors done? Or what have other 401k participants done to see how you're doing compared to sort of the whole group? Oh, and I will definitely be a frequent reader with that. And actually, how often do y'all publish that research? It depends on whether we have quarterly research, we have annual surveys, and so there's always something new up on our website. We also have a blog series where we will address little issues or highlight a little something out, one, out of one of the bigger research projects. So really, uh, it's a constant stream of updating as time marches on. Well, all righty, that sounds perfect to me. Certainly give me something to do on the weekends. <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've had a lot of fun. I hope my audience has gotten a lot of value out of this today. I hope they go check out the ICI website, and I hope they get some good stuff out of this. It's been a pleasure having you on. Well, Alex, it's been great fun. We've really covered, I think, the waterfront. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i'm very happy with where this interview went definitely some quality information all right sarah well thank you again and for all of you at home if you liked what you saw be sure to go and check out the websites be sure to see the links finder on linkedin all of that will be in the description below so with all those links you all definitely have some homework and while you're looking at that i'll see you guys next week